0: Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with somebody from the state fire marshal's office about fire prevention during the holiday season and other aspects of fire safety. Kate Burdett talks with a Palestinian living in Columbus who has lost several family members in the war between Israel and Hamas. In about 40 minutes or so, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Doug Petcash talks with a political analyst about Ohio no longer being a Bellwether State in the world of presidential politics. And I'll talk with the public relations manager of the Columbus Regional Airport Authority about the upcoming holiday travel and plans for the new terminals at John Glenn Columbus International Airport. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Anita Matheny, who is the chief of the state fire marshal's fire prevention bureau. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for talking to us. We all have heard of the state fire marshal's office we hear that were word, those words frequently but what is the fire marshal's office what do you do
1: oh well there's a, there's quite a long list uh, as a matter of fact we have eight different bureaus within the state fire marshal's office uh, everything from underground uh, storage tanks our buster bureau uh, who manages uh, any underground storage tanks leak, uh, leaking of those tanks or even above ground storage tanks and the permitting of those Uh, inspections and things, Uh, code enforcement, which handles the inspections of businesses, schools, uh, public buildings, helps all the fire departments with those inspections as well. We have our fire and explosion um, investigations bureau, who handles all of our uh, investigations of fires. Uh, We have our lab, our forensic lab. Uh, Our forensic lab does the analysis of any evidence that could be coming in. Uh, whether that be digital evidence or physical evidence. We also have, obviously, our Fire Prevention Bureau. We are in charge of uh, analyzing all of fires, uh, all of the Ohio fire data to find out exactly why fires are happening and try to create some prevention material to keep people safe. There's the TNR uh, testing and registration, who handles a lot of the permitting throughout the, the state, and, of course, the Ohio Fire Academy, who does our... Um, uh, our instruction and our education for our firefighters uh, across the state. So that I mean that's just a broad overview, not including obviously our administration and legal departments as well.
0: It's interesting, and I, I looked over your background a little bit, and it's, it's kind of cool because you walk the talk and talk the talk. <laughs> I saw that you have an associate's degree in fire science and a bachelor's in fire and emergency management at Kaplan University in Iowa, and also that you've been serving with fire departments, most recently a volunteer and the chief of the Craig Beach Volunteer Fire Department, which is up between Akron and Youngstown.
1: Uh, yeah, that's correct. I actually started in the fire service in
2: 1990,
1: and I've been in it ever since. I've I've um, sat in roles as a volunteer, as a part-timer, as a full-time uh, firefighter. i actually moved out west for about 16 years and uh, served out there as a full-time firefighter, paramedic, lieutenant, and then uh, took an early out retirement and came back to Ohio, and I was uh, blessed to get the position here at the state fire marshal's office, and, you know, I have a passion for for keeping people safe, and, uh, you know, this is just the next step in my career is to try to prevent fires and try to prevent fire fatalities,
0: most uh, most importantly. How common are house fires around Ohio and fatalities, uh, that sort of thing?
1: Uh, 161 fire fatalities in the state. Uh, This year we're trending a little lower, which I'm very happy to to report. Uh, I don't have the the total number of that for this year yet, but unfortunately, smoking was our number one cause of fire fatalities last year. The number two cause was heating, and the number three cause was electrical. Uh, Everything from overloading circuits to uh, having cores that are frayed uh, and not maintained well. So our top three numbers, or our top three causes, are those, smoking, heating, and electrical. Those are the things that we are most concerned about right now. They are the ones who are causing the most fatality. Since
0: 1990, when you first started working as a firefighter and all that, other than maybe unbelievably better equipment, has has the role changed for firefighters? Is it different now than it was in 1990? Oh, Oh, very much. Very
1: much so. Uh, you know, if you look about it, just the fuel load itself has changed since 1990. When you bought a piece of furniture in 1990, you know, you, you might have got some pleather or some leather or, you know, but it was made from real wood, real hard wood. And a lot of the things you get now have tons of plastics uh, and other materials, synthetic materials that are uh, pushed in there. And the risks are inherently more dangerous for firefighters. Now, there are safety equipment out there, and, and obviously we, uh, we hope that our firefighters are using that safety equipment well, but uh, firefighting itself has changed over the last 30 years, and we have to keep up to date with the changes so that we can better prepare ourselves as firefighters, and as a state fire marshal's office, we have to be aware of those changes so that we can appropriately get out some safety messaging to
0: our citizens. We're going to talk a little bit in a minute about holiday lights and, and Christmas trees and all that kind of stuff that pose a special risk this time of year, but I remember a few years ago hearing somebody talking about fires, especially in the middle of the night when people are sleeping, and it was, a, it was something that I had never thought of before, and that is that when you have a fire in your house, you can be rendered unconscious and die before you ever even knew there was a fire.
1: That's very correct. Correct. So a couple things, you know, fire moves very rapidly. And while we we focus on prevention, part of the prevention effort is preventing loss of life. And early notification of a fire is part of that prevention message. So what helps us there is smoke alarms. Uh, There are so many fires that happen in the state every single year, and those houses have no smoke alarms in them. And, you know, smoke alarms are crucial Uh, It used to be, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was supposed to be you're supposed to have a smoke alarm in, uh, you know, outside of a, a bedroom, in a hallway, and then in the main part of your home. Now the recommendation with how fast fire moves through the structuring today, we're now saying that you need to have a smoke alarm in every bedroom and in every main room and then on your different levels as well. The more alarms, the better. Uh, This is early notification. So if there is a fire, you'll be notified quickly. The other thing is close before you doze. We encourage people to close your bedroom doors when you sleep at night. Because even though it's a bedroom door, it doesn't seem like it's that much protection. It truly is. There's a time ratio. You know, everything that is in a residential building has to follow residential building codes. And some of those codes are built into the to the bedroom door, and the bedroom door offers a limited amount of protection, but it is extra time for you to be notified of the fire and to get out without injury.
0: So the hope would be you're sleeping, and maybe a, a fire alarm goes off in the bedroom or in the hallway before the fumes have come through the door. That's correct. Interesting. So, you know, I just bought two smoke detectors uh, about a month ago, and this was the first time maybe it's because I haven't been reading the instructions like I should, but it has a hush button on it so that if it's one near a cooking area, you can push the hush button and it'll shut it off for eight minutes and then come back on because some people disable their smoke detectors if they go off because of other activity in the house. Sure, sure.
1: And I, and, and I think that the smoke alarm companies. You know, I I can't attest to what they were thinking, but that's probably the line of thinking they were using. Uh, It's better to hush it for eight minutes and give you a moment to clear out the house from maybe smoke induced by cooking uh, than it is for you to take that battery out Mm -hmm. and just, you know, take that alarm down. Because should you forget to put that alarm back or forget to put that battery back in that alarm, you're now rendered helpless if there's a fire in the middle of the night because you're not going to get that early notification.
0: Do smoke detectors or carbon monoxide detectors wear out, or do they need to be replaced regularly?
1: Yeah, they actually do. Uh, Smoke alarms only have a 10-year lifespan. So realistically, every 10 years, you should replace those. And carbon monoxide alarms, uh, there's some different theories of thought. Some people say 10 years. Some people say 15. Uh, But either way, after 10 years, you should really just get rid of that alarm and get a new one. If you think about it, how many times have you dusted your home in 10 years? How many times have you dusted your home in a month? So all that dust is in the air. So as your alarms get older, that dust collects on those uh, devices that send smoke. And because it's so gradual over time, they simply may not alert you. So after 10 years, it's best to get rid of them. And it is best to actually maintain them as well. A lot of people say you can just put a uh, creeper up to them and, you know, suck out the dust or blow them out or what have you. But, you know, you need to make sure that they're clean.
0: Talking with Anita Matheny, she is the Fire Prevention Bureau Chief of the State Fire Marshal's Office. Holiday season. Uh, This is a a time for folks to be more aware, I take it.
1: Yes, yes. You know, I uh, I, I did an interview uh, here a few weeks ago and we were talking about holiday lights, and, you know, I love to go drive around and see all of the amazing lights that people put up. Uh, They definitely have more experience than I do. My house pales in comparison. But, you know, when you're putting those up, it is super easy to run everything into one cord and then plug it into an outlet. I think it's important to realize that an outlet can be um, overcharged or, or over overpowered. So, when you're running those Christmas lights, try to spread them out. Uh, those outlets do have breakers on them. You don't want to you don't want to pull so much power out of that outlet that it heats up and then it catches fire. So spread those out. Put them on uh, a good power strip that actually is a surge protector uh, that will click off and cut the power should there be an overloaded circle circuit. And then you know just be. Just be safety conscious. So when you're running those lights, you know be careful. try to use LED lights that pull low power. Um, you know LED lights um, typically stay cooler than all the other lights, uh, so they're a little just a little bit more safe.
0: Yeah, when you think about it, you know back when I was a kid decades ago, <laughs> um, you know putting these hot lights on a dry, real christmas tree that's kind of nuts when you think about it from back in the day (laughs) yeah
1: it's a recipe for disaster for sure uh you know my family used to love to get get the real tree have the experience to go cut down the tree and and bring it home and and i still think it's a great idea but you're absolutely right we definitely need to make sure that we're putting lights that are cool to the touch on your tree if they are hot to you if your tree gets dry they are super dangerous for that tree. And a Christmas tree, it can go up in flames within seconds. So it does not take long. And once it's up in seconds, now it's impinging on your home. So you now have fire that that is actually gonna run up your walls, your curtains, the other adornments in your house. And it's just, it's gonna end badly. So, uh, you know, try to keep those outlets um, clear from the needles. And you know use cooler lights, and make sure you keep your tree watered. Uh, my daughter's job was to make sure that she watered the tree every single day uh, before she left from school and when she got home from school, make sure there was water in the tree. Uh, that was one of her jobs, so uh, super important to keep it watered.
0: One of the things uh that was mentioned in the news release from your department was that one of every thirty one reported Christmas tree fires results in a fatality, and when that goes back to What you're talking about, how quickly they go up.
1: Absolutely. And I I believe those statistics were across the nation. Um, So, yes, one out of 31 trees. And it's it's scary how quickly they catch on fire. And if that happens in the middle of the night, just like we spoke about, if there are no smoke alarms in a house, you're not going to get an early warning notification. So, super important to have those up.
0: Talking with Anita Matheny, she's the chief of the Fire Prevention Bureau at the State Fire Marshal's Office. What about the differences uh, between a wood home, a brick home, and a mobile home? How how does fire uh, behave in those three types of homes?
1: Uh, Well, brick homes tend to retain heat uh, because obviously they have the the brick foundation and the brick outer layers. uh, But the inside of it is still... Uh, you know drywall and and normal things so between a brick house and a normally constructed house, home the inside of the structure is still has the same amount of danger uh, it, it just retains more heat because of the external components a mobile home however or a manufactured home uh, are typically built of much lighter wood so those homes do tend to burn much faster than a stick-built construction home, so even more so important to be safety conscious and fire safe in a manufactured or mobile home than in a stick-built. You should do so in both, but uh, those homes do go up very, very fast.
0: What about people who live in an older house where the upstairs is just simply always cold in the winter time, and they? Maybe they have kids sleeping up there and it's just too cold and they need some sort of a way beyond the furnace to keep the area warm. What would you recommend?
1: Well, you know, um, personally, I I don't love space heaters. Uh, Space heaters cause a lot of problems and cause a lot of fires. Uh, Hmm. But usually it's because they're being used inappropriately. So the very first thing uh, about heating fires is, Don't use a heater inside your home that's not supposed to be inside your home. Uh, There are some other ways to handle that. Realistically, put some more clothes on would be safer than to use like a torpedo heater inside your home. Mm -hmm. Number one, they can be deadly. Uh, They give off carbon monoxide, which can fill your home very quickly and render you unconscious. Uh, If you pass out and you're unconscious, Now that heater is going to continue until it overheats and catches something on fire. So that's the first thing. Never ever use a heater that is not made for indoor inside your house. Uh, That includes kerosene heaters and basically anything that burns fuel. Secondly, if you're going to use a space heater, it's very important that you treat it with respect. What that means is we give it a three-foot area around that heater that is clear from anything combustible. And, you know, try to have it to where it can't get knocked over. And if, you're, if you've are if got kids, if you've got animals, then make sure you, you purchase a space heater that has a tip protection. So if that heater gets tipped over, it automatically shuts off. Uh, the other thing is don't plug them into power strips. Don't plug them into, into surge protectors. They should be plugged directly into the wall. Uh, that gives you a little bit added protection because they do they do create a lot of power, and sometimes they can burn up those strips. Or if it's not a actual power, um, if it's not a, an actual uh, surge protector, then it's not cutting off the power for those. And you know the biggest thing: don't leave the house when it's on, or don't leave it on, you know, all night long without without keeping an eye on it so you definitely need to make sure that you uh, treat those with respect and keep an eye out for those
0: kerosene heaters i know were kind of a big thing decades ago i'm not sure what the status is on those now but any thoughts about those types of heaters
1: well you know it's kind of crazy i have a kerosene heater and it's funny to me because when i purchased it it literally said indoor outdoor outdoor The problem with that is, is if you pay attention to the inserts and the directions, it says it must be used in a well ventilated area. Because again, anything that burns fuel, any type of fuel, wood, kerosene, natural gas, fuel oil, it it doesn't matter. If it burns fuel, it can create carbon monoxide and probably will if it's not for indoor use only. So if you have a kerosene heater, I do not recommend that you use that in your home,
0: and there are also uh, you know other elements like you know if you've got a family that has a gas stove and the furnace uh, stops working before they get the repairment out there, maybe it's two or three days, and they they run the oven to partially heat the house, and obviously that's dangerous as well.
1: Yeah, using any component in your house to heat your house that's not meant to actually heat the house is a bad idea. You know it's just not a good idea it's better for you to go stay with somebody else i actually know somebody who used a uh, camping lantern to try to heat their home and the camping lantern because they were using it for so long uh caught on fire and caught their home on fire
0: wow yeah just a couple of minutes to go here with anita Matheny. she's with the state fire marshals fire prevention bureau she's the chief you know one of the More recent fire risks that we hear more about are lithium batteries. Uh, Either, you know, there's been a big problem in New York City with so many people using electric bikes that have, there's a recall on some of the brands because the batteries are causing fires. Yeah,
1: so lithium batteries are uh, kind of a somewhat new phenomena to us. So we don't, we don't know all of the information, but here's what we do know. Number one, should there be a lithium battery fire and you place water on it, it could be deadly. Uh, so they're very, very dangerous if they catch fire. Number two, we know that there's a phenomenon called thermal runaway, and we know that there's excessive heat in the battery when there's some type of process that creates the battery to overheat or makes the battery overheat. It creates more energy and more heat until it basically catches fire. So we know that when we're using lithium ion batteries, it is super important that we are safe. Don't put a lot of things over top of them uh, and get them overheated. Make sure you have some airflow. Use them correctly. Don't use them for things they're not intended to be used for. And just you know, think of normal fire safety. But if there is a lithium battery that is on fire, don't approach it. Call the fire department and let them deal with it. Stay back, because even the fumes coming from the lithium-ion battery can be very,
0: very dangerous. I thought it was interesting early on when you mentioned how furniture, different materials now have things beyond wood that are in them that make them more flammable. Is there anything else that people should be aware of around the house like that? Blankets or furniture or heating pads, you know, any kind of material like that?
1: Pretty much anything that heats up, you know, could be a fire hazard. And so, you know, what I tell people is just bring it to your mind, like just think about the fire safety. Unfortunately, half the time when something happens, we never thought that that could possibly happen to us. And if we just take a moment out of our day for everything that we plug in, everything that we have to light, like a furnace or something like that, or everything that produces heat of any kind, even a candle, we should take just a moment in our day to think about the fire safety around that. Don't leave the candles lit. Uh, you know, if you're using a, a, a heated uh, blanket, make sure that you know you have one that automatically shuts off. Uh, my daughter, when she was a child, when she was a teenager, used to use a, a straightener for her hair, and even that, she put it on her dresser one day and it started to melt the dresser. Mm-hmm. So, use a straightener that has an auto off, or make sure you unplug it. It's just general fire safety smoking is another huge cause of fire fatalities in the state right now and actually across the nation. People smoking on oxygen, extremely dangerous, discarding cigarettes in non-metal containers that eventually just catch on fire. So we just need to put safety, fire safety, number one in our mind and think about it daily, every day.
0: Anita Matheny joining us. She's the chief of the state fire marshals fire prevention bureau. Anything else you'd like to add?
1: Uh, You know what? It's just super important that we take the time to be fire safe. Make sure there's a smoke alarm in your home. Make sure that you're closing your doors at nighttime. If you're using candles, blow them out. Try not to use lightable candles. Use the melts instead or something a little bit more fire safe. And above all, teach your kids fire safety. Practice an escape plan. Talk about how you're going to get out of your home in a fire. There are more people that are stuck in fires and trapped who can't get out because they didn't have a plan or maybe they just didn't practice it. But if we have a plan and we're fire safe and we're aware that fire could happen at any moment, it makes us overall more safe throughout the state.
0: Is there a website you recommend?
1: Uh, Yeah, they can come to our website at com.ohio.gov forward slash fire. Our fire prevention page has multiple resources on it for fire safety literature, or they can go to the United States Fire Administration's website at usfa.fema.gov. And there are some great resources there, along with the National Fire Protection Association.
0: Okay, great information. Anita Matheny, she is the uh, Fire Prevention Bureau Chief of the State Fire Marshal's Office. Thanks so much for your time today. Sure appreciate it.
1: All right. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan.
3: I am Kate Burdett, and as the war rages on in the Middle East, in Gaza, Israeli and Palestinian people here in the United States are watching in horror most of the time at what they're seeing. And we're joined today by someone who has a very personal connection to what's happening right now in the Middle East. Rosen Aldada is a Palestinian-American. She is from Gaza. She lives in in Columbus, Ohio, where she is a real estate agent. And on November 18th, she received news from overseas that changed her and her family's life forever. Rose, thank you so much for joining us here on Columbus Perspective today.
4: Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me, and I
3: know this is a a very difficult story for you to share, but I know you want to share it for a very important reason. Yeah, it
4: is. It is a very, very difficult story, and um, I just feel like it is so important for people to hear their story and know that we are not just numbers. Like, we are human beings. We are real people that you work with and you see every single day.
3: And what was the news that you received from Gaza on November 18th? Tell me about what your family is having to endure.
4: Um, So I woke up around 6 a.m. to my mother bawling. So immediately I jumped up and I rushed over and my dad was hugging her and she was like bawling, screaming. And I'm like, what happened? What happened? And my dad goes, um, which is means uncle. So which means he he died, he was martyred. And then I was like, no, because... That that uncle, I was so close to, I had talked to two days prior. I had told him, um, I'm learning the Quran, I'm reading it. You know, he said he was so proud of me. I was telling him how well I was doing at uh, real estate. He was so proud of me, so I screamed no. And then my dad was like in so like my other uncle. And I fell to the floor and he just kept listing names. He said then he said which is my cousin who's, 20 years old. And then he said, Jenna, which is my cousin who is three years old, and Saad, which is my baby cousin who is 18 months.
3: Six members of your family from ages mm-hmm. six months to how old were your uncles? Probably in their my 50s. Uncles,
4: yeah, yeah, in their 50s. My mom is the oldest sister, so okay. she's the oldest sibling, I mean. Mm-hmm. And my uncle, my Khalil Rafak, he was this whole this whole attack was targeted, and I want people to know what is happening because my Khalil Rafak, he was a he was the number one doctor in Gaza. He was previously the head of the entire Qatar Hospital in Gaza, and then was moved to being the head of internal medicine at Al Shifa Hospital. And uh, my other khalo, he was an engineer in technology and computers, and, and as was my uh, aunt. And my khalo, Firas, he was also a sheikh at, uh, at the mosque and everything, and was teaching about Islam. Um, I want to start by telling you a little about, about each member of the family, um, starting by youngest. So, Saad. She was uh, named after my teta, my grandma. Uh, She was the pride and joy of everybody. Uh, She was just 18 months and she was gorgeous. Then Jenna, Jenna acted like she was 30 years old, honestly. Like she took care of Saad, like she was her mom. It was the cutest thing ever. And uh, Noor, my cousin, she was in her final year of medical school. Um, I remember a week prior, uh, she had told my mom, I don't think that I'm gonna finish medical school because of the war. And my mom said, no, no, don't say that. You're gonna be the best doctor, just like your dad. And she died saving her family, just like her dad. The next member of she was always smiling, always, always smiling. She was the light of everybody's life. She was so darling. And I told you a little bit about my uncles. So what happened was, the first they were they were all fasting, and um, every day what they did uh, since the war started, they would sit from the asr to the maghrib, and they would all read Quran together, and uh, then they would eat some dates and they would pray maghrib. So they were reading the Quran. They finished reading the Quran. They um, ate baits, and Khalil Rafat was like, okay, come on, let's pray. And they started praying, and the first missile hit. When the first missile hit, my Khalil was immediately trapped under the rubble and uh, was not found for over nine days until the ceasefire was allowed for them to go search for their bodies. Um, and Noor, Saad, and Jenna were stuck. Uh, my Khalil Rafat, my Khalil Tumana, uh, she also got out with the rest of the kids, and Khalil Firas also got out. Khalil Firas was helping another family who was also trapped. He got, he managed to get all five family members out. They saw him rescuing the family members and sent down a missile on them, killing him and the other five family members. My Khalil went back inside to try to get out his daughters that were remaining inside. And they saw him trying to rescue them, and they set a missile down, and they killed him. They were trapped under the rubble for days. Only Halteros was taken out and buried. Um, and uh, the rest of my family members were trapped under the rubble for days, actually over a week. And we got them out after the ceasefire, and they were buried.
3: And, Rose, it's important to point out here, I think, that For people of your faith burial is it within 24 hours of death yeah
4: yes yes that's very 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 important to us Mm -hmm. we always do it within 24 hours that's so disgusting in my in my opinion to like take away somebody's religious belief and like practice that they feel is so necessary uh so That's the story, and there are now six of my cousins are now orphans. My family, the rest of my family was very, very, very much reliant on my two uncles. But I have the power to share this, and my entire life, I've been sharing the story of Palestine, and I've been speaking about Palestine, and I'm so sorry that this is the way that I have to introduce it to most of the people that I meet now by telling them this story. Because before, um, when people would ask me, where are you from? I would say, oh, I'm, uh, I'm from Palestine. And I would get the question either, oh, what's that? Or, don't you mean Israel? And I really don't know which question is worse because one means that I don't exist and one means that I no longer exist because I'm extinct now because it's Israel. took okay. It's not Palestine, it's Israel. So my whole life, I was explaining that story. My whole life, I've been fighting
3: for Palestine. Rosen Aldada is a Palestinian-American. She is from Gaza. She lives in Columbus, Ohio, where she is a real estate agent. For those of us who have heard for so many years, I, I don't remember a time in my life that I have not heard about unrest in that region but here we are in the United States, and it's something that I think, unfortunately, we get used to hearing about. What is what is something that you would say to I, someone here in Ohio that's trying to grasp the gravity of this situation?
4: I just want to really point out that this is not usual, what we're seeing. This is not something that we can and should turn a blind eye I have family in Gaza, I know what's going on, I know what's happening on the streets. The aid that was sent in supposedly during the ceasefire didn't make it. My family's surviving off of piece of bread, off dirty water, they're living. some people in tents. Please, I am begging every single one of you, educate yourselves on Palestine and the history of Palestine because the Jews and the Muslims inside of Palestine we're living peacefully. All Palestinians want is to live peacefully in their land. They don't want to leave. You think we haven't tried to get our family over here since we came to America? I'm a first-generation immigrant. I, we've been trying for over 20 years. They don't want to leave. They love their country as they should. It's the most beautiful place on Earth with the most beautiful, loving people on Earth know that there's over 17,000 people currently murdered, including those days of the ceasefire, because people were still killed. There's still more than almost 8,000 people under the rubble, and there's 46,000 people wounded with no hospital. Collecting rainwater is illegal there. If anyone is caught collecting rainwater, they get tortured, killed, or or in prison.
3: And they're collecting rainwater as a means to have drinking water?
4: What yes, because some people can't afford to buy clean water. My mom was in Gaza two years ago. The first thing she noticed besides the constant bombings happening was the fact that they didn't have any clean water. They didn't have electricity 24 hours a day. My family is fortunate enough because they can afford to buy solar and have solar power. But most people don't have um, electricity. They have it for two to six hours a day, max. Six on a lucky day. It sounds
3: like a place where day-to-day life is absolutely horrific.
4: It's impossible. And the worst part is how... Now, when we were, were able to know what was damaged, they're able to check. We see that all six of my family's homes were destroyed. My mom's home back in Brazil was destroyed. My mom's shop in Brazil was destroyed. My uncle's companies were destroyed. And now it's on my family to rebuild them because we're all that they have. Uh, their main supplier of incomes were martyred. What is something
3: that you would say an average person here in Columbus, Ohio, could do to help?
4: Um, please call your local representatives. Um, come to our protest. My Instagram is the Palestinian Barbie. I always post about upcoming protests and things you can do around the community, whether it comes to vigils, whether it comes to protests, whatnot. Um, also, support Palestinian companies. Also, don't donate anything yet. There's nothing going in. Like I said, even during the ceasefire, there's nothing going in. Soon, I'm going to have a um, GoFundMe up where all the funds will be going directly to Gaza and to the people of Gaza, um, and that's I'm working on that right now. And just keep talking about it. Uh, like I said, my cousins, there's six orphaned cousins now, and they don't have anywhere to go to. So that's another problem that these that we are now facing besides rebuilding. How are we going to bring them over here? How are we going to bring them over here? We need to figure out how to do that. That's very, very, very important because there's so many children. There's so many children that are orphans now and we need to help them.
3: Rose, I so appreciate your willingness to share this story Um I can't imagine the pain your family is enduring and our condolences to to all of your loved ones. For those listening who would like to know more, Rose mentioned her Instagram account where she shares what is happening, an unbiased sort of view from the standpoint of a person with loved ones, with family and friends in the midst of the fighting in Gaza. And, uh, you can follow along. You can learn more there. You can find out, as Rose said, about upcoming events. She's the Palestinian Barbie on Instagram and, uh, her content is really powerful. So I definitely recommend taking a look. And again, we thank Rose for sharing her story of the human toll that the conflict in the Middle East is taking. I'm Kate Burdett for Columbus Perspective.
5: There's a child in Kenya or Sierra Leone, or India, or Bolivia, who you could connect with. And through ChildFund, it's possible. We may be thousands of miles apart, but we can still connect with each other. And when we do, we make things better. We connect children all around the world with what they need to grow up healthy, educated, and safe. That's what ChildFund is about. Together, we co-create, support, support, And sustain connections that lead to greater well being for millions of children who live in poverty worldwide. And their families, and their communities, and their countries, and you. Join us. Together, we can make the world a better place. Two small worlds at a time his and yours. Visit childfund.org to learn more. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias.
6: I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day.
7: You're not the right fit for this job.
6: Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me.
8: I do exercise and eat right. And I talk
0: to my doctor.
6: Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to
3: be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter.
4: Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Here's a segment with Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10
7: TV. When it comes to the presidential election, Ohio voters almost always favor the winning candidate. It's happened in every election since 1896, except for three times, 1944, 1960, and in 2020, when Ohio voted for then-incumbent Donald Trump. Could Ohio's longstanding history of being a bellwether state be just that, history? I'm joined this morning by Kyle Kondik, who has studied Ohio's history in presidential elections. He's currently the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Kyle, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's start there. Is Ohio's history of being a bellwether state now just that history?
8: Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I joked recently that I you know I wrote a book in 2016 called The Bellwether about Ohio's history of you know often voting or almost always voting for the presidential winner and and often or almost always um, voting very close to what the national popular vote was. But the book uh, you know quickly went from current events to history in 2016 as Ohio did vote for the winner, but it voted for Trump by eight points. Uh, Trump lost the popular vote by two points, so that was like a ten point uh, difference in that gap between how Ohio voted and how the nation. Voted, uh, only expanded in 2020, and so um, there are certain aspects of the the kind of Donald Trump political realignment. And, um, it's been bad for Republicans in certain places, but it's been good for them in others. And um, the Midwest, broadly speaking, I think it's generally been good for them. And Ohio is, is, is really stands out uh, in
7: that regard. You mentioned the the Trump realignment. Can you talk more about that? What does that mean exactly?
8: Yeah, basically, what we've seen across the country uh, is that. You know the the Trump kind of lost uh, Some voters in um, Kind of affluent uh, 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 Kind of upscale highly educated Suburban places and of course Those sorts of places exist in Ohio Like if you're in central Ohio like look like upper Arlington Which used to be pretty Republican leaning and now Really isn't anymore Um, But the trade off there was that Trump did do Better in particularly kind of Smaller town rural areas that are are Pretty heavily white uh, and also Don't necessarily have particularly high levels Of four year college attainment and and, you know there are lots of places across Ohio that sort of fit that description uh, and Trump either turned some really red places even even redder you can see that in like north Northwest and western Ohio uh, and also he took some places that maybe had been competitive in the past or even democratic leaning like the Youngstown Warren area or certain parts of eastern and Northern Ohio uh, and either made them purple or made them red and just the trade-off in Ohio again with, with those those different trends it just really has been bad for Democrats and good for Republicans.
7: And so those are the trends you're talking about in what you call the collar counties around the counties that are home to the three major metropolitan areas of Columbus, Cincinnati and Cleveland.
8: Yeah, look, when you, when you, again, when you look at some some sort of suburban or exurban counties across the country, you know, and that's, the, and, and it, I'm defining, like, collar counties as the counties that touch, in Ohio, the three big urban counties, of Cuyahoga, Cleveland, Franklin, Columbus, and Hamilton, uh, Cincinnati, um, you know, in some places you've seen a democratic, you know, consistent democratic trend in those kinds of places in the Trump era. Well, in Ohio, uh, a lot of those uh, collar counties have, have actually gotten redder uh, over the course of the, you know, the, the time that Trump has been around, running for President in 2016 and and 2020, you know, yeah, there are some positive signs, like, for Democrats in, like, Delaware County, which historically is is arguably the kind of the most Republican or one of the most Republican counties in Ohio. But, you know, Delaware has trended Democratic, but it still votes Republican for president. Uh, A couple other places in Southwest Ohio. But if you look at, like, Northeast Ohio and some of the the counties that that touch Cuyahoga County, a lot of those places have just gotten redder and presidential elections going from uh, Obama's last election in 2012 to 2016 and 2020. And so, again, it's like easy to find a lot of negative signs for Democrats in the state. It's not that hard or it's not that easy to find places, you know, po- places where there have been positive trends for Democrats in the state. You balance it all out. Uh, and it just has sort of shifted the political center of gravity in the state uh, in presidential elections and in other elections, too, uh, more toward the Republicans.
7: I don't know if you get into making predictions or not, but what are you expecting based on trends to see from Ohio voters in 2024?
8: I think, look, I think it'd be a surprise if, if the Republicans did not win the state for president. I think it probably would mean that something um, would have gone wrong for the presidential candidate, not for the Republican side. And the Democratic candidate, be it Joe Biden or someone else, um, is, is you know, winning nationally, going away. Um, you know, I think for the, probably the more interesting race in Ohio is Sherrod Brown's re-election race, which I think is really a, a toss-up. I think Brown probably will do better. He needs to do better, I think, than, than the Democratic presidential nominee in Ohio. Just a question of how much better can he do? Uh, you know, in in this particular era we're in now, uh, there's just much more of a correlation generally between presidential results and, and you know down ballot results for you know for U.S. House and for uh, U.S. Senate. And so uh, it may be that you know a generation ago, Sherrod Brown would have been um, in better shape maybe than, than he is now. But um, I do still think it's you know it's, it's it's there for for Brown to potentially win. But again, he's going to need some people to split their tickets in all likelihood.
7: Kyle Kondik with the uh, Center for Politics. At- At the University of Virginia, thank you for your insight on this very interesting topic now as we wait and see what happens coming up in future elections. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kyle. So we've been talking about Ohio's longstanding history of being a bellwether. But, um, you know, really, what is bellwether. Where does that term come from in the first place? I was curious, so I looked it up on Merriam-Webster.com. First of all, it has nothing to do with the weather. The term first appeared in English way back in the 15th century. Merriam-Webster explains since long ago, it has been common practice for shepherds to hang a bell around the neck of one sheep in their flock, thereby designating it the lead sheep. This animal was historically called the bellwether, a word formed by a combination of the Middle English words bell, meaning bell, like ring a bell, and weather, a noun that refers to a male sheep. It eventually followed that bellwether would come to refer to someone who takes initiative or who actively establishes a trend that is taken up by others.
0: That's again Doug Petcash, Cash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Up next on Columbus Perspective, the manager of public relations for the Columbus Regional Airport Authority.
3: Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus on especially while fighting Stargard, a blinding retinal disease. But she's not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases, providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org.
6: People do some pretty cool things in their 40s and 50s. Why should saving for retirement be any different? I mean, they go back to college. Learn new instruments. Start skateboarding. Whoa! Thanks, sweetie. So wherever you are in your retirement savings journey, head to aceyourretirement.org and start chatting with Avo today. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. I think it's just vapor. Vaping is safer than smoking, isn't it? One vape pod has as much nicotine as one pack of cigarettes.
2: Get your head out of the cloud. Talk to your kid about vaping. Visit talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council
0: this is columbus perspective on the fan hi this is dave james and on the phone with me we've talked to her a number of times it's sarah McQuaid, who is the manager communications and media relations at columbus regional airport authority how are you
2: Hey, Dave. It's great to be back. I'm doing really well.
0: Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us uh, what the Columbus Regional Airport Authority is.
2: Sure thing. So at the Columbus Regional Airport Authority, we like to say that our mission is to connect Ohio with the world. And that is through managing and operating our passenger-focused John Glenn Columbus International Airport, our cargo-focused Rickenbacker International Airport, and General Aviation Airport Bolton Field.
0: Okay. And all three of those uh, have been pretty busy the last year or two since the pandemic, right?
2: We have been busy. It is great to see people
6: flying again.
0: Last time we talked to you, it seems like you were up in the 90% range of what you would call normal, I guess. Is that still kind of on par with where things are or what?
2: You know, we're actually even closer to that uh, normal figure that we had. Um, We're closing out the year with our overall traffic levels nearing our busiest year in airport history, which was 2019. And that year, we saw um, almost 9 million passengers come through CMH and uh, the Rickenbacker Passenger Terminal. And so, I don't have the final figures yet. We're going to have that um, as we wrap up the year here, but it's, we're getting very close to that.
0: What about the number of flights or destinations? How is that? How is that ranking compared to you know pre-pandemic?
2: We actually now have 53 nonstop destinations available from CMH and the Rickenbacker Passenger Terminal, and that is actually the most destinations we've ever offered in airport history. So we are doing really great in that realm. Um, there were a few new routes that we recently announced um, that brought us up to that record breaking uh, figure. So we had Delta announce uh, Salt Lake City is returning, and Southwest announced that San Diego and Kansas City will begin service.
0: That's great. You've also got uh, some of these uh, uh, low-cost airlines that go south, uh, especially during peak travel times. Uh, How are they doing?
2: All flights have been doing really well. Yeah, we've been very busy at both of our passenger airports. Um, I think that people are really feeling ready to fly and and get away, especially as we're heading into the the winter and and the colder months, I know that those warmer destinations are going to be very popular.
0: We don't talk much about Rickenbacker, but I would guess with Intel, uh, you know, happening in New Albany and all these other places, I realize that, that some of these data centers maybe are not so much with things coming in and out of the area, but there's been a lot of other development as well. So I would think that the cargo aspect of Rickenbacker has a bright future.
2: Definitely. The um, cargo side of things at Brick Rickenbacker um, are continuing to grow as far as our uh, square footage in that area with warehouse uh, distribution space. And uh, we are working closely with um, new potential business partners um, as the entire Columbus region is preparing for the silicon supply chain, uh, as they're calling it, um, as well as other high-tech and biomedical opportunities.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was looking at the ranking of airports in the U.S. as far as uh, usage and travel, and Cleveland is 46th nationwide, Indianapolis 47th, Pittsburgh 49th, Cincinnati 50th, and Columbus 51st. So they're all right, almost exactly the same size, it seems. Is there a competition between the airports, or are they just simply more focused on the regions that they serve?
2: You know, I I think from from our perspective, at least, with Columbus Regional Airport Authority, um, we don't have a lot of competition. We're the primary uh, passenger airport for several counties in the region. And, uh, you know, this is one of the best or maybe the best option for um, lots of central Ohioans. And, you know, especially when you see that we now have 53 nonstop destinations, which is the most in airport history, uh, I know that that's, that's a major draw.
0: Now, back in August, uh, plans were released of the possibility of a new terminal, a $2 billion plan. I guess this is not actually set in stone yet, right?
2: Yeah, so we are in the design development Mm -hmm. stage of that new terminal. Uh, So things continue to progress with that project, and um, we do have some initial renderings that are available, um, but it is still
0: in the design phase. And the plan is, if it goes through, would be, uh, I think I read like the end of 2028 20, or 29, it could be open if things go smoothly?
2: Yeah, if everything goes according to plan, yeah, that's right.
0: And the old terminal, the existing terminal, will still be there, so how would all that work?
2: Right, so the, the new terminal will be built um, in the current location of the blue lot, if you're familiar with with that parking area on airport property and so that's correct the former terminal um would actually be demolished
0: but the the new terminal would be bigger and have more gates right
2: it would be bigger um so i believe there will be a a couple additional gates with that new terminal and um two international arrival gates and that's a 25 percent increase over the existing
0: terminal and so with the blue lot being used for that, once the old terminal is gone, will will parking be put there or what's going to happen?
2: So actually, the, the current plans call for a new 5,000-space parking garage. So there will be plenty of parking.
0: Okay. And uh, if, if somebody hasn't been to the airport, say, since the pandemic, there have already been some big changes, right, with the rental car facility and all that?
2: That's right. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, we did open our new rental car center at John Glenn International, and um, it's uh, you can't miss it. You drive right by it on your, your way into the terminal, and uh, things have been going really well there. And the plan is for that rental car center to actually connect over to the new terminal one day.
0: Talking with Sarah McQuaid, she's the manager of communications and media relations at Columbus Regional Airport Authority. You know, when you go on uh, some of the travel websites where people can review facilities and and attractions, Columbus gets a pretty high rating, and one of the reasons for it is that it's more like a small, medium-sized airport, which means there's not a lot of hassles and complications, and it's easy to find your gate and get around and all that. I would guess that this new terminal, if it happens, will focus on that because, uh, you know, you're kind of building for future technology, I guess, as much as what's happening today.
2: Yeah, that's right. We, we hear all the time from passengers that they love the ease and convenience of getting around our airport, um, especially compared to some other airports they might fly through along their journey. And so absolutely that we, we aim to um, retain that with the new terminal. Um, one thing that will make things a lot smoother is that there will just be one security checkpoint.
0: Yeah, that's right. So so that means that uh, once you go through security, that would mean that all of the restaurants and shops would be available, because now you wouldn't be able to do it unless you left that secure area and went into another one.
2: Exactly, yeah. It's going to be a really nice experience for all passengers.
0: That's great. And it'll just give a, you know, I, I, there's nothing like... Uh, an empty airport. It's great for the traveler, but it's <laughs> it's a little bit eerie sometimes when you're in an empty airport. <laughs> that wouldn't be happening as often, I would guess, right?
2: Right. Yeah. No, Central Ohio is continuing to grow. We're on track to exceed, I believe it's 3 million people by 2050. So things are only going to get busier.
0: The busiest time for the airport, I, from what I understand, is pretty early in the morning, right? Around sunrise or so?
2: It varies by day, but but yes, typically the the busiest time is first thing in the morning.
0: Do you have any advice for folks uh, as the Christmas rush begins here?
2: Yeah, so we're really excited to welcome travelers to the airport as they're making their way out for um, Christmas or even New Year's travel. It's going to be really busy. Um, We're expecting just over 200,000 departing airline seats scheduled for the two weeks surrounding those holidays. And so some of the tips that we like to give to passengers is to have a parking plan. So know your options before you get to the airport, and you can actually even take advantage of 24-7 valet parking, which is a great Christmas gift to yourself if you want to have that really convenient option. Another great tip for passengers is to make sure to arrive early, um, at least 90 minutes prior to departure for domestic flights and two hours for international. And you can give yourself time to enjoy restaurants and shops and relax a little bit before boarding. And then lastly, I would share um, that we all should be making packing lists. Do you make a packing list when you go on on trips, Dave? I
0: I do, yes, absolutely.
2: I I feel like it's a must. And especially when you're going through TSA, you really want to make sure that you don't accidentally bring any prohibited items through security. Uh, So we like to recommend that you start with empty bags and then make that packing list and check
0: it twice. Yeah, that's great. See, I live in Gahanna, so I'm just a hop, skip, and a jump, or even just a hop from the airport, and from the time that I leave the house until I'm through security, when I can no longer do anything about it, I'm always worried about something either being forgotten or leaving something on in the house or whatever, and so I did finally start making the list, because it really does set your mind at ease if you do that.
2: I actually do that myself. I have a, a whole list of things I need for every trip, from my ID to um, downloading my mobile boarding passes, and then I check it off each time I go on a flight.
0: Yeah, it's good stuff. Sarah McQuaid, again, she's the Manager of Communications and Media Relations at the Columbus Regional Airport Authority. Anything else you'd like to add?
2: No, we're just um, ready to welcome travelers to the airport, and we really just hope that everyone has a um, really enjoyable and smooth travel experience and um, I invite everyone to visit flycolumbus.com for parking information, shop and restaurant
6: options, and everything else you need to know to prepare for your trip.
0: All right. Sounds good. Good information. Uh, Sarah McQuaid again with the uh, Columbus Regional Airport Authority. Thanks so much for your time and the information today.
1: Absolutely. It was a pleasure speaking with you, Dave.